Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening and happy Women's History Month. I'm Chantal Lafontante and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple Best in Indiana Journalism award-winning public affairs program, now in its 14th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacted the African-American community. While Bring It On crew takes a hiatus for spring break, they have produced a special Bring It On broadcast highlighting two interviews um, highlighting Women's History Month. We begin with Vivian Finnell to discuss a, a, a discussion this evening on domestic violence. She launched Not to Believers Like Us, a faith-based advocacy group for domestic violence prevention. Their mission is to shatter the silence of domestic family abuse in faith-based community by raising public awareness among the clergy, church leaders, lay members of all and all faiths. Join us as we pick up the discussion featuring Bring It On producer Clarence Boone and anchor Lalia Randall. Happy Women's Heritage Month. Thank you very much. But first, 12.7 million people are physically abused, raped, or stalked by their partners in just one year. That's approximately the population of New York City and Los Angeles combined. That's 24 people every minute. Because it's someone you know, research suggests the need for more public discussion. 60% of Americans 15 years of age or older know a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault. Among the 70% of women who have experienced domestic violence and told someone about it, more than half, that's 58%, say that no one helped them. Only 47% of men experiencing domestic violence report telling someone about it, and with good reasons. Of men who do tell someone, 87% reported that no one helped them. And three out of four, 73% of parents with children under the age of 18 said that they have not had a conversation about violence in the home. And three quarters of Americans, or 75%, say they would step in and help if they saw even a stranger being abused. But almost two-thirds of Americans age 15 or older say if we talk more about domestic violence and sexual assault, it would make it easier to help someone. Once again, research suggests the need for more public discussion. We have invited Vivian Fennell to lead us in a discussion this evening on domestic violence. She launched Not to Believers Like Us, a faith-based advocacy group for domestic violence prevention. Their mission is to shatter the silence of domestic family abuse in the faith-based community by raising public awareness among the clergy, church leaders, and lay members of all faiths. Ms. Fennell? Yes, good well, evening. Welcome to Bring It On. Welcome. Well, Thank you. I am very um, honored to be on the program this evening, and thank you for this opportunity. Now, you, you've been on our show probably at least three times? I believe so, yes. And we haven't solved all these issues yet? Uh, no, <laughs> we haven't. And, of course, these are monumental issues that are impacting uh, not only people in America but around the world. But for today, we want to raise the awareness 
the emphasis that Not to Believers Like Us has on the faith-based advocacy groups and faith-based community. And with that, can you give us a little history about Not to Believers Like Us and, and why you were moved to uh, launch this, uh, this initiative? Well, Not to Believers Like Us was birthed out of a need, uh, one that was brought to me when I was president of a state uh, ministerial alliance organization for pastors' wives. I also grew up in a home, now that I know what domestic violence is, that domestic violence occurred. So it became very, um, it became a passion. And I found out that many of the faith community were not discussing it. Um, The secular community was unable to discuss it because of their grants and because of their lack of knowledge of the scripture or other faith writings. So it was just like in limbo, except for maybe the Jewish community. And um, I believe there's one other community, but I can't remember now which one it was. But um, we decided to just be a non-denominational faith-based organization where we could reach out to faith institutions um, in any, any state, any belief. We're not trying to preach a gospel. We will if you want us to. But what we're really trying to do is let people know that um, God's creation was never intended to be abused. You know, I'm I'm listening to you, and and you said it was birthed out of uh, this period of time when you were president of the um, Women's uh, Pastors Wives Alliance. Um, is it that people came to you and disclosed what was going on, that word, and and just counseling with people? Did this surface or? Yes, they came to me. Um, I'm a registered nurse by trade, and they felt. I could possibly help them in some way understand what was going on because of the extensive um, psychiatric and social services background that I had. And when I saw how prevalent it was, I just really felt like there needed to be something done. Well, if we could jump right in to this conversation from this respect, there's a large concern to uh, this issue just relating to assault only and and they'll know that there are blurred definitions of what is considered to be domestic violence or sexual assault and can you help us distinguish between the two well domestic violence um, really centers around power and control manipulation and intimidation between two intimate partners in a, in a relationship, it could be a past intimate partner. And when I say intimate, I'm not necessarily uh, speaking of sexual, but that could be a part of it. It could be current husband and wife, current uh, boyfriend, girlfriend. Um, it could be a hetero, um, I mean, a homosexual couple or, or lesbian couple. Um, where sexual assault is usually against someone that you don't know. It's, it's random. Domestic violence, it has a sexual rape component in it, but that's by someone that's supposed to love you, and it's not random. Okay, can you tell us some of the common assumptions that people have about domestic violence? Yes, some uh, believe that 
people stay in domestic violence. They won't leave because they like being mistreated. Some believe people stay because of money. Um, some believe a man can't be uh, abused. I mean, it's a man. How can he be abused? Um, they can't believe that a person, a particular individual, could be an abuser because they're charismatic, um, generous. Um, there may be a lawyer, a doctor, military. They may be a pastor. They may be well-educated, uh, live in the uh, nice area. Uh, and they also um, believe that people who are abusers are poor, uneducated, maybe drug-addicted, alcoholics, on welfare, out of work, no faith. Um, some people believe it's not any of their business, that it's a family issue, that it doesn't affect everyone, and that people shouldn't get involved. I would like to say at this point that it is not a family issue, it's not a private issue, it's a societal issue, because it affects everyone, either with high um, health care costs, either with high welfare costs, because our child services because maybe now both parents have been killed or one has been killed and one is in jail so now the children have to be taken care of and there's many more aspects of that but you can kind of see how it affects everyone i i kind of want to revisit uh, we were talking about the blurring of the lines be- between distinguishing between domestic violence and sexual assault what types of domestic violence occur um, I-, I think I just go to physical as sort of a default, and I may be totally wrong, and that that is the primary area of of domestic violence. But what are the other areas? Well, actually, physical is not the primary. Um, Usually a person has gone through verbal, mental, psychological, emotional, financial, sexual, and spiritual abuse before they're ever hit. Uh, Let's face it. If we went out on a date or on our honeymoon and if someone hit us, we, nine-tenths out of ten, would leave immediately. But the person is systematically beaten down emotionally and internally until they are at the point when they get ready to get hit, or not ready to get hit, but when they get hit or choked or or slapped, um, pretty much a lot of them just, don't care. They say that's easier sometimes because that goes away where the emotional abuse stays forever. You know, when you, when you talk about verbal abuse, can you give us a, uh, um, an example? Uh, some might say, well, I just offer constructive criticism. If you can't take it, I'm trying to help you. I'm your husband. But, but, but what does verbal abuse sort well, of look con- like? Constructive criticism would be um, something to the effect, red looks really good on you with a sweet voice and a, and, and a nice attitude, where verbal abuse would be you're stupid, you're dumb, you're ignorant, you don't look good in anything, you'll never be anything, you're ugly, I don't even know why I married you, you're the dumbest person in the world. And those words not only are said mean but they play over and over again in the person's mind. And then, then uh, you, you, you mentioned financial abuse, and, 
I think I have an answer to that, but, but I'd like to hear from you. How would you describe someone who's financially abused? Well, financially abuse can take a number of um, routes. One could be that the victim is allowed to work, and I use the word allowed, allowed to work. However, they are not allowed to handle their money. Their money goes into a bank account, a joint bank account. They don't know what the money's spent for. They don't know where the bank account is uh, necessarily. They don't have a checkbook. They don't have a um, debit card. They don't have a credit card. And they may be given 5 or $10 a day. Um, this is your money for the day. You use it. You don't get anything else. Um, and I know most, a lot of couples have joint um, checking accounts, but usually when you have a joint bank or checking account, everybody can go to that account in that marriage. The husband, the wife can draw out however much money they want to, but in a financial abuse situation, that's not true. The other uh, route would be that you're not allowed to work, therefore you have no money, you have no credit history, you have uh, nothing to fall back on if you decided to leave. So those are just some of the ways that uh, financial abuse occurs. And, and a final follow-up would be the final before hitting, before the physical tends to occur, and, I, and, I, and I'm getting the sense that these sort of escalate up to yes. the physical, but the spiritual abuse, and what shape, form does that take? Well, again, it has a number of routes. One could be the misinterpretation and the mis. Uh, teaching of faith writings uh, from the faith leader. It could also be misinterpretations um, and justification that the abuser gets. You're supposed to submit to me on your head. You need to do what I tell you to do and use that against that person. So that's kind of how the spiritual can be abused. In the Christian faith, um, the scripture says that the man and the wife are to submit themselves one to another as unto the Lord. And further in that passage in Ephesians, it says the wife submit to the husband. But also further in that scripture, it says, husbands, treat your wives like yourself. So that, null, that right there knows the mistreatment in any form of your wife. Um, as I said, I have a psychiatry background, and we lock people up that burn, stab, uh, cut, beat up their cells because we say they have a mental problem. So if a husband is going to treat his wife like himself, then he does her no harm. For those who just joined us, we're having a conversation um, long overdue on the subject of domestic violence and Vivian Fennell has joined us this evening and she has launched the Not Two Believers Like Us, a faith-based advocacy group for domestic violence prevention and again their mission is to shatter the silence of domestic family abuse in the faith-based community by raising public awareness amongst the clergy, church leaders, and lay members of all faiths. Vivian, I have a question. All of these things that you say that are attributed to someone having an in an abusive relationship. In the beginning, I'm sure that all these things didn't happen. What are some of the signs 
or something that we can start looking at before it escalates to these points? That's a good question. Um, the most immediate and most um, prevalent sign is quick uh, commitment. That's what I call an orange flag. Also, immediate isolation. You need no one but me. I'm, you know, I'm everything. You don't need your mother, your father, the rest of your family. You don't need your friends. Um, you depend on me. It's sort of like a prisoner of war concept. Um, the, the abuser is extremely jealous. And jealousy in the spiritual world is called witchcraft because it's the definition of domestic violence, power and control, manipulation and intimidation. And then um, sometimes um, they abuse the, the victim in the beginning by making all these elaborate plans. And then at the last minute, either not showing up, not calling, or canceling the plans. Again, this is a form of power and control. And so those are a few of them. I could give you more. Um, buying their clothes, uh, you're going out to dinner, but you never get to pick where you want to go, or you never get to pick your clothes. Um, they might ask you what you want for your birthday, and they bring you something totally different. So it's called grooming. It's very, it's similar to the grooming that um, a pedophile does with a child. At the beginning, it all looks fine. And even if the victim says, you know, this is feeling funny, some family members might say, yeah, but he or she is really good looking, they have a good job, they have good money, they're okay, they're a little weird, but they're okay. And so the person begins to doubt their, their own, you know, flags that are going up with inside of them. You know, I, I, I keep thinking that if you, you made a statement that if you go out on a date with someone and, or even on a honeymoon night, unfortunately, if it's, at, if it's gotten to that point, but if you go out on a date, first date with someone and you notice all these red flags or they even get physical or grab your arm or do something inappropriate that we might term, um, how valuable is premarital counseling or just in, not even premarital, but just instruction on what to look for if you're interested in looking for a mate? Well, that's a two-point uh, question. <laughs> One is, if you go out on this date and this person grabs you or does any of those things, there should be no premarital counseling. Mm -hmm. that, that relationship should end right then. Because nine chances out of ten, it will not get any better with counseling because the, whoever the perpetrator was does not see that their actions are wrong. Now, premarital counseling is something that everyone should get, um, and part of that should be the discussion about what domestic violence is, what it looks like, uh, all those things. The counseling should be done separately at first, not the husband, I mean, not the fiancé, you know, with the... Uh, what do you call the other person? <laughs> That's yeah, funny. Um, I can't remember. Uh, the but anyway, <laughs> not together. Excuse me for being silly for a moment. Not together. They should be um, counseled separately 
so that if one of the uh, partners feels like things are wrong, something's not right, they feel free to talk about it. Um, Again, it's better to hold off on marriage. If something's wrong, it doesn't matter if you have the dress, the hall, and the food. You're better off not getting married if you just don't feel good about it. You know, I, um, I'm i thinking again, here I go, with, with, with another sort of uh, assumption-type response. But uh, I, I have heard individuals say, and, on, and even on television documentaries, whatever, that uh, he cares for me. That's why uh, he, he treats me with all this, quote-unquote, attention. And then on the reverse of that, um, she cares for me. And that's why, you know, in public she may reprimand me or she may, um, you know sort of structure my life. What's your response to that? My response is caring for someone does not mean that you structure their life. Two people, even as teenagers, uh, because we have a lot of teen dating violence, they are old enough to decide whether they want to go to the mall with their friends or go to the movie with you. Adults are definitely Um, able or should be able to decide what it is they want to do. You can care for me without controlling me. But because many of uh, young people and adults in our country really have not had strong role models about what a relationship is in the home, and then we have the media um, with all sorts of odd relationships, movies that uh, still show women being degraded and mistreated, I think we're null uh, and numb to, to what a healthy relationship really looks like because we don't see them that often. I would like to say, I'm going to step out on the limb, that President Obama and First Lady Obama are good examples of a healthy relationship. No, I don't know what they do behind closed doors. However, they could not live in that White House and have an abusive relationship and the world not know about it. Someone's going to tell it. So the things that they portray that they do shows a healthy relationship. The respect that they give each other in interviews, even if one or the other kind of wants to correct the other one or straighten the story out, they do it in such a loving fashion that it's down the road when you realize, oh, they told them that wasn't right. You see, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. It's uh, the proper deference and and respect to one another. Right. The silent, vi- the, the silent victims in all of this abusiveness is the children. Can you tell us how it affects the children and what can we do? Well, it affects the children from um, if they're born, it, it, pre-birth. They show that if a mother is abused in pregnancy, which a lot of times the physical abuse starts at that time, um, the baby is failure to thrive it doesn't necessarily uh, grow right in the uh, uh, uterus. Um, then as they grow up in it, they become fearful. Um, 
Um, they don't. They just don't mature and maturate the way that they should. These children are living in a hostile environment. Their environment is similar to the children that live in these war zones. They're confused. They think it's their fault. Um, they don't understand why daddy or mommy would do this to the other one. Sometimes um, they're caught in the middle uh, trying to help the, the one um, partner that's being beat, so therefore maybe they get hit or knocked down. Um, it's just a, it's, it's a prisoner of war. It's a post-traumatic stress um, syndrome in these children. They, they wet the bed much longer than um, most children do. If you remember the interview with Chris Rock, not Chris Rock, um, Chris Brown, way before him and Rihanna got into that altercation, he on TV said he wet the bed till he was 17 years old because he would hear his mother being beat at night. Um, they fell in school. They fail in, in having good relationships. I personally feel the rate, the, the um, amount of bullying that we see now comes from what the children see in the home, and they play it out on the playground. Yeah. So that's, again, that's some of the, uh, the things that we see with children. Um, they're more suicidal. Mm -hmm. They use more substance abuse. Um, their potential to thrive is lessened. What can we do? Well, that's a good question, too. What we can do is just kind of keep our eyes and ears open, not label a child bad or slow or um, even a bully until we research why they are behaving the way that they're behaving. If we look at adults, just a normal adult, not in a violent situation, if things are not going well with us, our behaviors are different than when everything is going well. We don't give that right to children. We label them versus helping them. It may get mean you get um, child protective services involved. It may be you just sit down. Uh, I don't know what the rules are at school anymore. But a counselor, um, maybe talk to the child, uh, maybe do some art therapy with this child and just see what do they draw. If you're in a, in a church setting and you see some of these things displayed, be it uh, children acting out or be it, uh, you know, uh, young adults or you may suspect someone's in an abusive situation in the uh, minute that we have left, and I'm going to give you the final word on this, how do we say in church settings and then in our communities, how do we do appropriate intervention? Well, appropriate intervention is always um, that you err on the side of the victim, but you don't rush in. You make yourself available. You don't accuse. You make yourself available. You educate yourself, make yourself available. Now, why do I keep saying make yourself available? 
um, it was mentioned at the beginning of the show. One of the reasons people do not talk about the violence because they're not believed. They have a fear and shame. But when you make yourself available, you're non-accusatory, you, you're just there to do whatever it is you can help. You're open to listen. You don't try to control the situation, but you make yourself available. I think that's the best thing that we can do is educate ourselves. What does domestic violence look like? And then do proper intervention by making ourselves available. Now, if we see someone physically being harmed, each person has to decide how far they want to get into that. But everybody can scream, stop it, and everyone can call 911. Well, we want to thank Vivian Fennell for joining us this evening. She is the founder of Not to Believers Like Us, a faith-based advocacy group for domestic violence prevention. Their mission is to shatter the silence of domestic family abuse in the faith-based community by raising public awareness among the clergy, church leaders, and lay members of all faiths. Search for Not to Believers Like Us on Facebook. And Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringingon at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringingon at wfhb.org. This is Bring It On. Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. As mentioned at the top of the hour, while the Bring It On crew takes a hiatus for spring break, they have produced a special Bring It On broadcast highlighting two interviews highlighting Women's History Month. Here now is a March 9th interview from 2015 with co-anchor William Hosea and producer Clarence Boone as they speak with Janet Cheetham Bell and Audrey McCluskey, who share their observations on society and their reflections on their joint book signing and presentations billed as Writing History, Writing Truth, held during the 2015 City of Bloomington Black History Month kickoff and reception. Author Janet Cheatham Bell knew there there was an interest by some in a book. People, she just couldn't find anyone in the publishing world who agreed. So in 1986, Bell self-published famous black quotations and some not so famous. And in 1992, she published famous black quotations on women, love, and other <coughs> topics selling more than 90,000 copies of the two titles. Bell licensed them to Warner, Brook, Warner Books, which combined the books into one volume published as famous black quotations. Indiana University professor emerita and author Audrey McCluskey wrote a book of her own, A Forgotten Sisterhood, pioneering black women educators and activists in the Jim Crow South. The book also tells stories of the Lucy Craft Laney story, Charlotte Hawkins Brown, and Nanny Helen Burroughs, all women who founded schools for blacks living in a segregated South in the post-slavery era. And I will add that uh, Janet Cheatham Bell will mention that her latest work is not all poor people are black. 
Uh, both authors took part in the recent City of Bloomington Black History Month kickoff and reception back on February the 5th at City Hall. And their presentation and joint book signing event was billed as writing, and that's spelled with R, writing history and writing truth, spelled with a W. We've invited them on this evening to reflect back on that event and to shed some light upon their other literary works and observations on society. So with that, ladies, welcome to Bring It On. Thank, Thank you. you. And we, we, we spare no expense in, in flying you both in <laughs> and even had good weather for you. Uh, and, uh, we're so glad to have you both seated we're here. We're very appreciative of that. And this, this will last this whole week just because we like you both so, so, so very much. Um, let's talk, let's, let's look back at the kickoff for, for Black History Month. And there, it was in two parts of, I understand you made a presentation and then you actually signed books. Let's talk a little bit about that and then talk about how you got started as writers. There are a lot of listeners who probably are saying to themselves, I'd write a book if I had a chance. I just don't know how. And, and you're here to, to tell us how to do it and how to self-publish and how to make, well, anyway. <laughs> Let's go back to that event, <laughs> a Black History Month kickoff, and uh, Dr. McCluskey, tell us um, what, of, during the presentation, what things did you have to share? Well, first I want to just say that I was very happy to have this collaboration with Janet. Uh, being black women in this community, we've observed a lot. We have some of the same ideas about things. And so when this opportunity, just by happenstance, that we published books around the same time, I don't remember if it was exactly your idea or whether we came at it together, but I think it was your idea, actually, and it was my topic. But we were very pleased to be able to work together mm-hmm. as black women who are writers and thinkers. And so we thought for a while about what should we call this? And we went back and forth for a while, and finally we came up with the idea of writing history and writing truth, because she certainly writes truth, and I try to correct history in some way. And we both do both. So we thought that would be a good idea. As for the event itself, I think I I was very pleased by the turnout. I was very pleased by the reception and certainly Janet. Yes, I was really pleased with the turnout as well. Uh, As a matter of fact, people were waiting for us when we arrived. That's because y'all got it like that. (laughs) (laughs) They call it entourage. I want to start off with uh, uh, a really basic and obvious question, and I'd like both of you to answer. <clears throat> what motivated you to write this book? I mean, did you wake up one day and have a revelation? Was it something gradual that was building inside of you? How did that come about? Well, for me, being a professor, you had to publish a parish. So, <laughs> so I, I, I write books. I have written books to keep my job. <laughs> 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 no ghostwriters here, right? <laughs> not, not at all. But over a process of years and time period, um, this has been one of my focuses. It, that is on black women institution builders. You hear a lot about institution builders among men. Not enough in terms of black men, but certainly almost nothing about black women. And I did my dissertation, wrote my dissertation on Mary McLeod Bethune. And at that point, I realized it wasn't just about Mary McLeod Bethune. There was a whole network of women doing similar kinds of things. She had more charisma. She had, you know, connections internationally and nationally. So her name is fairly well known, although I wouldn't put it to the test of this present generation. But it ignited my desire to find out more about these women and their work. So that was the beginning for you. That was the beginning. 
Well, I don't have to write to keep my job. I write in order to have a job um, because writing is who I am. It's what I do. So I'm always writing. And uh, some people say that I'm fairly opinionated, too. So, I wonder who said that. No. <laughs> and now, so, now, we don't have a seven-second delay button. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're hoping you share some of those opinions tonight. <laughs> well, so I, whenever something would annoy me, I have a blog, too. I don't write on that so much anymore. But whenever something would annoy me or I felt strongly about something, I would write about it. And sometimes I would put it in the blog. And so I just started collecting all these things that I had written. And a couple of the essays in this book I wrote years ago, like the tribute to my dad. I wrote that a long time ago. And um, one of the essays is a chapter from a part two of my memoir that I've been working on for years. So I just collected together all of the things that I have been writing, and I wrote a couple of things especially for this book. The, the title essay, Not All Poor People Are Black and Not All Black People Are Poor, I wrote that especially for this book, so I could use that mm -hmm. as the title. <laughs> well, I, um, I'm really sitting here just really admiring the both of you because, you know, you, you took an idea and you put pen to paper. And for a lot of people, it's in their heads, and they and they don't know how to get out of their head on the paper, or they're apprehensive, or whatever challenges pre present themselves, they just don't press forward and, and do it. Um, can you think back to what was that one seminal moment when you said, I'm going to be a writer? And, and not so much that I have to, to publish or perish, and we know that, but I knew before then that you probably had a desire to write or to get it down. Can you tell us when that when that occurred? Probably when I was about five or six, when I first, you know, with my left hand, which they tried to correct, when I picked up a pen or crayon and started writing, I didn't like the power of the pen or the crayon in my hand. And from that, writing out outside the lines and upside down, but I always had a pencil or a pen somewhere nearby. So I think, I, I can't remember the moment, but I do know that it's been a lifelong process for me, so writing. did your parents have to paint a lot of walls in their home? <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you always had a crayon. No, I was very well trained. My mama didn't play that. <laughs> okay. Well, you said something, two things interesting. Um, you were writing with your left hand, and they tried to correct that. Yes. And then you wrote outside the lines, so you weren't governed by <laughs> yeah, uh, I, conventional I was, no, thought at the time. No, that's, that's some of the power, too, is that you can do those subversive things, you know. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> Well, I did get into trouble for writing on the wall. <laughs> and I, I don't know, I, I couldn't really write. I think I must have been two or three years old. But uh, like you, I always liked holding a pen in my hand. And I used to collect pens and notebooks. And a f clean sheet of paper was like, you know, weed to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> This Bring It On exclusive brought to you by so, Women's uh, History Family Month. Show. <laughs> what she meant was that paper back then was made out of we no. Oh, she did. Okay, well, but anyway, we, we, we kind of. Oh boy. <laughs> 
Uh, Let's um, just say you like to write. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean, even like she said, I, I, as a small child, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wrote stories when I was a little girl and used to store them away, never showed them to anybody except my best friend because mm-hmm. she wrote stories too. But, yeah, writing, I was born to write. I know that. Did it help to um, – a lot of people bottle things up. And they, they hold on to them for years, and it manifests in some kind of way because there's some who are of the opinion. And I kind of agree with this. You really can't suppress uh, a lot of things to, for too long because it will manifest some kind of way. But did you find writing as an outlet? Uh, first, we talked about creative expression, but was it an outlet for um, just venting at times or expressing joy or whatever? What did writing come to symbolize? Well, my first writing actually came about because I couldn't sing. My brother <laughs> my brother and sister could all sing, you know, and they were in the choir and all, and I could never really sing, although I always, as I said before, liked to write. Mm-hmm. And so in order to get some attention, I think, because my brother and sister would all, oh, that's a nice voice, you know, so I, I think I was craving attention as well to, to just lay it down straight. But writing... I always considered myself a poet, even though a bad one, you know. <laughs> so I used to write, scribble little verses and things of that sort. And actually, my first writing that was published was a poem. And that was when I was uh, maybe in my 20s, mm-hmm. I think. And so I knew I didn't have much future there, but I still liked to write. Right. And so if you were asking me to give advice to someone who has something that they want to write about, choose a form, whatever form is convenient. If it's mm-hmm. an essay, a poem, even writing songs, just kind of do it. You know, be moved by the passion that you have to put some ideas down. It doesn't matter the form. Writing cuss words doesn't count, does it? I didn't do that. Okay, I was talking, <laughs> I was talking about me. Oh. oh, well, yeah, get it out. He said vent, so I think... Not tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Janet, you said something interesting. You said if you if there was something that upset you, you spent your time writing about it, whereas most people spend their time whining about it. <laughs> no, that's how I process most things is by writing about them. I mean, if mm-hmm. I'm upset or angry or or sometimes just trying to figure things out, you know, like trying to figure out why things happen the way they do or why people behave the way they do, I write about it. And mm-hmm. it does help me. It helps you to understand it. Yeah, it does. And, and deal with it better, right. know how to proceed. And I agree with Audrey. I, I You don't know how many people I run into who say they want to write. Well, see, wanting to write is not writing. Mm-hmm. Writing is writing. Mm-hmm. So if uh, you have something in you that you want to say, write it down. And computers make that so much easier now than it yeah. was back when I started. I had to write it on paper. No, I did type it. So now the the blank screen sort of symbolizes that blank piece of paper. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and for our listeners who just tuned in, we are having a delightful conversation uh, with... Dr. Audrey McCluskey and Janet Cheatham-Bell, both are uh, seasoned authors. Uh, The Pulitzer keeps evading them, but one day (laughs) we know that they will get that call. And, um, um, well, we're just so glad to have them. 
And I would say for those who are listening and maybe had a uh, uh, hankering to write, and as you, you've just heard, wanting to write is one thing, but actually writing is the other. In other words, just do it. Uh, implicit with all this is you also should have a love of reading. Oh, absolutely. It oh, goes yes. hand in hand, absolutely. doesn't it? It should go hand in hand. Yes. So, no shortcuts. <laughs> and, I mean, you have to read a variety of different works and, and to form your own voice and your own opinions. So, but, but I want to get back now to uh, your particular work. <coughs> and you, be, you began with uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, who, of course, uh, Bethune-Cookman. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she was founder of that uh, stellar institution. Who are the other characters that are covered in your particular writing? Okay, I'm, I'm glad you asked because they are the ones who are really forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I was reaching for is the idea that not not singular women, but the network of women who made all this possible. They helped each other. They uh, encouraged each other. They were sisterhood, actually, in the broadest sense of the word. So Lucy Laney, Lucy Craft Laney, was really the instigator for this sisterhood, at least early on. Uh, she started her school, the Haynes Institute in Augusta, Georgia, back in 1886, 1883, really, but 1886 when it was incorporated. And that was just three years after Booker T. Washington started Tuskegee. But we all know about Booker T. Washington, but we know very little about Lucy Craft Laney. And Bethune actually sent her son... Albertus to Lucy's school. And later on, she became an apprentice to Lucy Laney. Lucy Laney was really a spectacular woman. She never straightened her hair. If you look at the cover of my book, you have, I have this, I love my cover even more so, <laughs> because this was a photograph that was taken around in 1920s, and it's uh, eight black women who were in a sisterhood of reformist black women. And you have on here Mary, not only Mary McLeod Bethune and Lucy Laney, you also have Mrs. Uh, Booker T. Washington, the third Mrs. Booker T. Washington, Margaret, La- Margaret Washington, and several other women. And the thing that I wanted to show is that each one helped one or others. So Lucy Laney inspired Mary McLeod Bethune, who became an apprentice at Haynes, and went back and started her school a few years later. And Lucy Laney and Mary McLeod Bethune were both uh, apprentices of Laney, excuse me, Mary Mary McLeod Bethune and Charlotte Hawkins Brown. So you see that connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the last woman that I write about, I write about four, but I tried to paint a broader picture where they were all helping each other. Mary Church Terrell, some of the other women whose names you may or may not know, they were all complicit in this sisterhood, in this network. And so I wanted to, nobody had written about them as this kind of sisterhood, this network. They've written about them individually and also talked about the black women's club movement. But the club movement, these these women were members of the club movement, but they also had their own things going, right. you know, as well. So uh, my project was to show that connection. And so that meant going back, looking at their letters, looking at documents, looking at their school records, some of the things that... Uh, to me, because I, I love history, were just exciting to hear their own voices. And I tried to capture some of their own voices in here by quoting some of their letters and some of their uh, correspondence among themselves. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Janet, uh, before you respond to that question, uh, I have a special request for both of you. Now, you both did a, a 
a book reading at the uh, Black History Kickoff event. So I wonder if uh, you could maybe take about two minutes apiece and give us a, a reading from the two books that you have with you uh, now after Janet responds to Clarence's uh, last question. You probably got to ask it again. Um, he doesn't remember. Me, no, I do. I do. Uh, if you could share with us uh, the the uh, the topics within your book, not all poor people are black, and not all black people are poor, if, if that's correct. Can you share with us uh, why you were inspired to write it and some of the themes that it addresses? And do you take a, say, a central character that you follow through the entirety of the book, or is it just observations of the black community? Well, no, I don't follow a central character. Uh, some of the essays, matter of fact, the essays in the first section is divided into three sections. The essays in the first section are autobiographical, so I guess you could say I'm the central character. Okay. And then in the second section, uh, it's also sort of autobiographical because I talk about my spiritual search mm -hmm. and how I evolved to the kind of belief system that I have now. And then in the third section, it's about how we live in community together and how it's important that we understand that we are all one and that we have to work together and, and try to get rid of some of these barriers that we have between people and races and and uh, ethnicities and all of that. So the general theme of the book is accessing your power. And I talk about how I access my own power and make some suggestions about how other people can access theirs. Is, is this sort of a continuation in some ways of your book, which uh, detailed your life growing up in Indianapolis? Well, the autobiographical essays could be, yeah, a continuation because one of them actually is a chapter from part two of my memoir. Because mm -hmm. yeah. you you poured it out in that one book about Indianapolis, and it was enlightening. Um, well, that's one of the things I want to do. I, I I want people to think. I don't want people to accept the myths that they have been told unless they've examined them mm -hmm. and determined that they are in fact accurate. And so, and I want people to have information. I mean, people had very little information about what it was like to be black growing up in Indianapolis at that time period. So, I, And I want people to know what actually happened, not the myths that have been developed to kind of sh shadow, put things into the shadows. And, and I noticed I was just up in India and saw all the gentrification going on and how Indiana Avenue was just nothing like. We passed by Madam Walker, went to the Urban League the other night, and I shake my head because at one time this was someone even used the phrase the mecca for middle mm -hmm. uh, the middle of the country as far as artists jazz artists it was speakeasies even though it was yes. the half of the place it was well I mean and that's why both of you embrace history so much and it's so powerful uh, William had a request for a uh, an oratorical inspirational moment <laughs> and. Uh, we will preserve well, this in our, our audio archives, by the way. So. Okay, you're looking at me, so I guess I will go first. But, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I was talking earlier about the network and the friendships, and so I think I want to read a part of Chapter 7. And uh, Chapter 7 is titled, The Masses and the Classes, Women's Friendships and Support Networks Among School Founders. Okay. And so I'm going to read just a section that talks about the complex friendships 
between friendship between Mary McLeod Bethune and Charlotte Hawkins Brown. Mm-hmm. Remember that Mary McLeod Bethune, as you said, she founded Bethune Cookman College, but she founded it as a girls' school and grew it into yeah. a college and now university. Charlotte Hawkins Brown founded Palmer Memorial Institute in Sedalia, North Carolina. And it was called a finishing school because the black middle class sent their children there. They wanted to escape the inferior schools in the South, and they sent their, sent their children if they could afford it. It was $500 a year for tuition, and <laughs> that was a lot. Uh, and most of them went to college. But these two women had, as I say, a very important friendship. It was complex. So I want to read just a part of their correspondence between them. In a 1941 letter, Bethune acknowledged a check from Brown supporting one of her early fundraisers. It was one of the steady stream of small checks, usually 5 or $10 between them. Throughout their friendship, they traded visits to each other's homes and gave speeches at each other's school. The tone of their writing interchanges suggest that Bethune considered Brown to be the ultimate arbiter of culture, a role in which Brown exulted. Bethune was, no doubt, pleased to receive Brown's letters giving a positive review of her visit to Bethune-Cookman as a keynote speaker for graduation. Brown, thanking Bethune for her hospitality, wrote, The recent commencement service was a beautiful and highly cultural affair. The two women shared donor lists and prayers and sent gifts to each other and often chided one another about working too hard, a critique that both women ignored. There were also instances of frank advice, as in Brown's 1946 letter endorsing the intent of Bethune's million-dollar fundraising campaign, but warning Bethune of the difficulty of raising so much money. Listen, darling, go slow. You are no longer young. To raise a million dollars is a Herculean task. But if Bethune-Cookman is to live after you, you must do it. So Bethune wrote to Brown, thanking her for her honest assessment, assessment, and ends the letter by telling Brown to, quote, take care of your sore gum, be lazy a while, and you will be all right. When Bethune wrote Brown, relaying her thoughts about taking over the management of the Hunkerford School in Eatonton, Florida, in order to keep it under black control, Brown wrote back, saying, in essence, are you crazy? But she said it very diplomatically in these words, I'll do everything I can to help you, but I definitely feel that the day of the private school is practically gone, and I believe you will be adding a burden to your school if you attach this institution to it. So did she go forward? She did not. (laughs) She took that subtle advice. (laughs) Well, thank you for that, and and, uh, Janet? I have one essay in here. It's in the third section. It's called The Big White Lie, America's Racial Paradigm. And I'll just preface this by saying that I was probably about 30 years old before I figured out that white lies were supposed to be the less atrocious lies and that black lies were supposed to be the really bad ones because I had it turned around the other way in in my mind. And so when I was about 30, I discovered that I was had misinterpreted white lies and black lies. But in my own book, when I wrote my own essay, I could put it however I wanted to. 
So I call it the big white lie, America's racial paradigm. <clears throat> and what it's about primarily is the uh, desire of the Tea Party and others to go back in time uh, to take, quote, their country back. So, and I say having our first black president seems to have unhinged a sizable number of Americans, most visibly those in the T-slash-Republican Party, but thankfully they are not the majority. These Tea Partiers are outraged at having a black man in the White House, and in addition to insulting the president in every possible way they can think of, they are passing and pushing for laws to take us back in time to their, quote, glory days. <clears throat> Apparently, they're longing for the days when people with a drop of African blood couldn't vote, let alone run for president. To achieve that end, they are erecting new barriers to the right to vote, especially for black and brown folks. This is step one back to the days they long for, when only propertyed white males were allowed to vote. For these disturbed Americans, President Obama's election has concretized the warning that Patrick Buchanan has been issuing for years, most specifically in his book, State of Emergency, The Third World Invasion and Conquest of America. Third world is his euphemism for people who are not white. That title and the mythology of a white America that so many want to return to represent the big white lie. This has never been a white country. The only invasion of America has been by whites, people who look like Buchanan. There were no whites, that is Europeans, here when the first immigrants made contact with the people already living on this land. These immigrant Europeans utilized their more efficient weaponry to invade and occupy the land, systematically displacing or killing the indigenous people. They succeeded in taking control, but the original inhabitants they dubbed Indians survive and continue to have a presence, however marginal, in their ancestral homeland. And I go on from there to talk about how these people also were responsible for bringing in other groups of people who were not white, and yet they want to take their country back. Well, as I said earlier, you, you put it forth, and uh, both of you have done the research, and you passionately articulate history as well as observation, and that leads me into with the final minute or two that we have. And left. that was Clarence Boone speaking to Janet... Chinit Bell and Audrey McCluskey, who share their observations on society and their reflections on their joint book signing and presentation, Builders Writing History, Writing Truth. This is Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to African American community, here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org.